0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Every once in a while, someone asks me my opinion on Donald Trump. Will he get impeached? Will he get reelected? Why is he so popular? Why is he so unpopular? What I usually say in reply is, why do you care about my opinion on this subject? I'm part of the vast majority of pundits who said way back in 2016, that this guy didn't have a hope in hell of becoming U.S. President. That's what we all thought back then, or most of us at least. So why, four years later, would my opinion matter? I got Trump wrong. I have no credibility. But someone who does have credibility is veteran political writer Mark Halperin. Long before 2016, way back in 2012 in fact, Halperin attended Trump's speech at a major U.S. political convention and then told a national television audience that, yes, this guy could become a major political force. And so now that journalists are weighing Trump's chance of re-election, Halpern is someone worth listening to. Halpern's new book How to Beat Trump, America's Top Political Strategists on What It Will Take distills lessons that Halpern gleaned from interviews with 75 Democratic strategists. The main takeaway is that Trump is going to be hard to beat, especially if the Democrats don't put forward a nominee with broad appeal. That may sound odd, given that Trump is yet again facing new disclosures about his administration's attempts to pressure Ukraine to investigate his political opponents, but Halpern makes a strong case, and he joined me by phone this week to discuss his new book on the Quillette podcast. Here are excerpts from that interview. You once met Donald Trump, and something happened at that meeting which, at least in retrospect, gave a clue about the way his presidential ambitions would play out. Could you describe that meeting?
2: I had never met Donald Trump, but like most people in America, I had, of course, heard of him. I live about a mile away from him in New York. And I saw him give a speech at the CPAC conference in Washington. It's an annual event with conservatives from around the country. And lots of people who were thinking about running for president in 2012 spoke there. Donald Trump got the best reception. And he didn't get the best reception because he's a celebrity or his speaking style. The issues he talked about, particularly immigration and China and trade, Really resonated with the crowd. So I went on television and I said, People should take this guy seriously. I don't know that he's going to run. I don't know that he, he would win if he did, but the issues he's talking about are really powerful for a lot of conservatives. Donald Trump, as I like to say, is a complicated man, but there's some things about him that are quite simple. One is if you say something nice about him on television, he likes you. And he called me up and he said he, he had seen what I said and he invited me over to Trump Tower to talk about politics. So I went. I was curious to see how interested he was in actually running for president. And when I got there, I got there on time. He was still in a meeting. So I went into the office of the guy who at that point was sort of his top political aide, a guy who's now famous, Michael Cohen, who's now serving time in prison, but at the time was kind of uh, out there going to Iowa, New Hampshire, scouting for Donald Trump. And Cohen showed me in his office a series of binders, uh, kind of old-fashioned analog binders with plastic sleeves in them, And in the plastic sleeves were letters. A lot of them were handwritten. Cohen said they came from all over the country, and he started showing me them and reading from them. And they were from people who were begging Donald Trump to run for president. I was really surprised. I've been to a lot of offices of people thinking about running for president. I'd never seen something like that. Now, knowing Trump's history of of self-promotion, I thought it was possible that his staff or Cohen himself maybe had written all those letters at home. But in retrospect, I think they, they were authentic. They were the early signs that a lot of people in America saw in Donald Trump as an outsider, as someone talking about those issues, trade and immigration in particular, who they could rally around. And so when Trump didn't, didn't run in 12, but then ran in 16, that was, for me, a sign to take him more seriously than a lot of reporters did, because having grassroots support that's spontaneous is something that lots of politicians claim they have. Very few actually have it, and Trump clearly had it.
1: There are passages in this book that talk about his worst character defects, how petty he can be, how egomaniacal he can be, how vicious he can be. And yet at other points in the book, you offer him, I guess, it's praise in terms of the way he plays politics, and even how, when he's giving a speech, the content may be vicious, but he affects this jovial sort of intimacy with his audience. Was it hard for you to combine these two elements?
2: No, no, because this is not a partisan book. It's not a pro-Trump or anti-Trump book. It's a, it's a reported book. And so when I am writing about Trump's negative aspects, or when I'm writing about his positive aspects, it's really almost entirely out of the mouths of the 75 Democratic strategists I interviewed, either directly quoting them or, or informed by what they said. So... One of the the, the most important parts of the book or aspects of the book, I think, is the degree to which a lot of Democratic strategists, including ones working for presidential campaigns, are worried that Trump is going to win. Part of why they're worried is because incumbents in our country's history usually do win re-election. But partly it's because they appreciate Trump's ability to communicate. They appreciate his ability to rally his supporters. They appreciate his ability to use tactics that are often vicious but are also effective. So the positive sides come from the fact that these Democrats, they appreciate it as political pros, but they also worry about it because they worry that whoever the Democrats nominate to run against him won't be up to handling those strong political deals that Trump has on the negative side, also informed, not just talking to Democrats, but to Republicans. I don't think there's a, there's a negative line in the book about Donald Trump that his children would disagree with. I don't think there's one. So He is like all of us. He's a flawed man. And I don't play down the negative aspects either of his personality or his presidency. But what this book is about is worried Democrats saying, you know, en masse to me, we're worried we're not going to win. We need to look at Trump in an unvarnished way. We can't just focus on his negative traits. We have to focus on the things he does well as a politician because they got him elected once. And if we don't do most everything right, he's going to get
1: reelected. For a lot of people there's one thing that Donald Trump did or said that we said to ourselves wrongly it turns out uh, this is it he's finished. In my case I remember it was when Trump publicly lambasted the the legacy and I think to some extent even the family of of a Muslim American war hero. I remember like wow this guy's done. Was there a point for you ever that you said to yourself you know, again, wrongly. That's it. This this guy's done.
2: I thought the Access Hollywood tape was potentially lethal, and frankly, uh, so did Trump. He was faced with an unprecedented set of challenges. Came out on a Friday. He had a debate on Sunday, and that forty-eight hour period, I think, certainly held a lot of peril for him. And there were a lot of Republicans saying, you know, on his own team, well, he can't make it. He's not going to be the nominee anymore, even though he's already, you know, gotten the nomination at the convention. He showed in that 48 hours a lot of the traits that Democrats are worried about. You know, Bill Clinton was a survivor as well. Bill Clinton was someone who faced during his time as a candidate, his time in the White House, faced moments where people said, well, that's it. You know, that's the end of the road politically for this guy. People say that about Trump, too. And like I said, coming back from his attack on the Khan family that you referenced, coming back from the Access Hollywood tape, coming back from being the leader of the birther movement. There's so many things that he did before he even ran that should have been disqualifying, running for the Republican nomination as someone who had been a big donor to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. The list goes on and on. The point is, the reason so many Democrats I interviewed for the book are so worried is this guy has survived things. And now he's facing impeachment. And a lot of Democrats, you know, I went back and talked to people I interviewed for the book, and they said impeachment is probably just going to make him stronger. He won't be convicted by the Senate and this will allow him to rally his base and, and could potentially turn off a lot of independent voters. And it kind of blots out the sun and the oxygen for the Democratic candidates fine to face off against Trump. So probably access Hollywood was the moment I thought he might not make it, but I think at this point people are foolish to think that if there's anything Trump can't at least theoretically survive.
1: You have a chapter early in the book where you describe this amazing meeting that took place, I think it was 1991, at the home of a major Democratic fundraiser, right. and you had a whole bunch of prominent Democratic presidential candidates who had assembled, including most famously Bill Clinton. And it's this incredible scene because obviously all the candidates are there working on their own behalf, but there was also this sense of collaboration among the donors and the organizers, uh, party officials talk about this legendary Democratic strategist named Paul Tully Mm -hmm. who tragically died shortly thereafter. Everybody in the room seemed to feel like they needed the party establishment as much or perhaps more than the party establishment needed them. And so that at least at that stage they were all going to collaborate because they didn't have the means to get their message out as presidential candidates at that stage without the party. Yeah. As I read it, I thought to myself how much has changed because In 2019, every person in that room would also have the option of saying, screw this. I'm just going to get my message out on social media. I don't need the party.
2: Well, that's a big difference. And some of the campaign finance laws are different. But the reason why that's the prologue of the book, the reason why it's so it is, despite the changes like social media, the reason why it's applicable is that meeting was convened at a time when Democrats had been shut out of the White House, with the exception of Jimmy Carter, going back to the 1960s. In 1991, so they had elected one president in, in 30 years, and they were really worried that they were going to lose again. George H.W. Bush had a 90 percent approval rating after the victory in the Gulf War, and there was no clear person who was going to step forward and be the Democratic nominee. So this meeting took place in the spring of 91, a year and a half before the election. And the Democrats, the presidential candidates and the donors and the, and the party leaders came together, and they basically said, we need two things. We need to believe that we can win this election. We have to have the hope that we can win. And then we need to be able to have a nominee who has the resources to win a general election. Because what, what happens, of course, when you have an incumbent, is the incumbent doesn't really have to worry about fighting off the nomination challenge in most cases. And it doesn't look like Donald Trump will. And so the Democrats in this case, and, and back in 1991, they were going to spend all their time and money fighting each other. Someone would become the nominee in the, and likely in the spring of the election year. They'd be broke, they'd be battered, and they'd be a sitting duck for the for the incumbent. So what the Democrats did in 1991 was they said, let's make a deal. Let's say that the, we're going to all support the Democratic Party's efforts to build something, a kind of a uh, on-the-shelf plan and resources to target for the general election. And therefore, whoever the nominee is will accept that plan, and they'll they'll have an advantage, which otherwise they'd be starting from scratch. You see now with this Democratic field, there's not a person in this field who's thinking about the general election. Donald Trump and his team are already targeting general election voters. They're thinking about the Electoral College. They're thinking about voters in the Wisconsin and the Milwaukee suburbs and Green Bay, voters in, in, uh, w- in Western Michigan, voters outside of Minneapolis. They have the luxury to think about the general election. What the Democrats did in 91, and Paul Tully, you mentioned the famous strategist, played a big part in this, was to say, we have to have some way to think about the general election now, because you have to simultaneously run for the nomination and think about the general election. It's a bit of a paradox, right? If you if you spend too much time thinking about the general election and then you lose the nomination because you're distracted, all that planning goes for naught. If you don't think enough about the general election and you just focus on winning the nomination, you win it, but then you have no resources or plan for the general, it's all for naught.
1: This is one of the reasons why I find it such a turnoff to watch the Democratic debates, they all look like they're trying to win over San Francisco and Park Slope. And even as a Canadian, I find the posturing to be insufferable. It really is a huge advantage for as you say, for an incumbent who can skip all that and go straight to swing states and average voters.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a huge advantage. And and we look four American income elected American presidents have lost since a uh, re election since nineteen hundred. Only four. And When they've had a strong economy, and the economy isn't strong for everyone, but right now it looks like it's still relatively strong. When they don't have a strong nominating challenge, they always win. So you've got these Democrats fighting each other, spending all their money fighting each other, as you say, talking about issues, going to the far left. uh, Most of the major candidates in this race now support the elimination of private health insurance and decriminalizing people coming over the border illegally. Those two positions alone, many of the Democratic strategists I interviewed for the book say, those two positions alone almost ensure Donald Trump's re-election, barring some ability of the Democrats to, to alter their image on those issues. So it's a it's a huge problem. You have not only the, the practical reality that it's hard to, uh, to plan for the general election simultaneously with running for the nomination, but as you said, you also have this issue challenge of how can you run appealing to the most liberal activist parts of the party and still be viable for the general election. And it's, it's another one of the huge advantages that the president has. But again, it's not my analysis. It's the analysis of the Democrats
1: I interviewed for the book. You have someone like Biden. His strength is that he can appeal to mainstream voters. But when I read The New York Times, there's article after article about how boring he is and how old and how white. And
2: Well, look, there's a debate within the Democratic Party about whether Biden would be the strongest general election candidate or not. My book doesn't deal with the individual candidates. It's agnostic on who should be nominated. I didn't ask the strategist that I didn't ask them what kind of person, whether it should be more of a centrist. The the point is that, that you suggest is the media is in several ways. You raised one, even though most of the people in the media would like Donald Trump to lose, they're helping him. One way they're helping him is they're giving a lot of favorable coverage to the more liberal candidates who a lot of people think would be less electable. They're also, because of the coverage on cable TV and in places like the New York Times, They're giving off the impression, as they did in 2016, that Trump can't possibly win. If you consume most of the liberal mainstream media uh, every day, you'd have the impression that the guy has no chance. And that is going to potentially lull a lot of voters into thinking, once again, I don't need to vote because there's no way Trump can win. I I hear that on the news every day. That is a really dangerous thing for, for the Democrats I talk to. They say, we have to convince voters that this is hanging in the balance. And it's not just that Trump has a chance. As the incumbent, he's the favorite.
1: It wasn't until I read your book that I really appreciated how hard it is to beat an incumbent president. The list of one-term elected presidents, so we're, we're eliminating Gerald Ford here. Right. Uh, George H.W. Bush, 89 to 93. Jimmy Carter, 77 to 81. I think most people know those examples. What I didn't realize is after that you have to go to Herbert Hoover yep. and then, <laughs> then Taft yep. in uh, 1909 to 1913 to find examples of one-term presidents, elected presidents voted out of out of office. That's that's quite extraordinary.
2: We've now had three straight two-term presidents. The first time that's happened since the beginning of the republic. So. Clinton got reelected. And when Bush was running for election, his campaign looked closely at what did Bill Clinton do to get reelected? They followed that playbook. Then Barack Obama built on the, on the, on the Bush and uh, Clinton playbook. The Trump campaign is doing the same thing. One of the most important things, and if you look at the examples of Carter and, and George H.W. Bush, the two modern presidents who lost re-election after being elected, they had tough nomination challenges. Pat Buchanan ran against George Bush and um, Ted Kennedy ran against Jimmy Carter. And that really hurts you. It hurts you for a variety of reasons, resources and, and impression of strength, which is so important in any presidential candidate. So it doesn't look like Trump's gonna have a top nomination challenge. He has the ability to look at, and his team has done this, what the last three guys did to get reelected. And as you said, historically, all incumbents do pretty well. The, the reason I decided to write the book was, I heard over and over from, from Democrats, People in our party need to look at history. They need to look at the unique challenges of running against Trump. We need a much more robust plan for whoever the nominee is if we're going to win this thing. This is not going to be easy just because Trump's approval rating is low, just because he's done a lot of outrageous things as president.
1: There's one point in the book, you have a great line, Trump did not create the Trump coalition. He simply saw it, took ownership of it and stoked it. Could you tell me what that coalition is?
2: Yeah. It's a group of people who, since I'd say the 1970s, have started to feel left out of the American dream. They don't think their kids are going to do, or grandkids are going to do as well as they did economically. They struggle to figure out how they're going to pay for college and retirement. They look at the American manufacturing sector declining. They look at immigration coming from the Southern border that they think is out of control. And they look at elites in both parties who support trade agreements with other countries that the trump coalition feels are unfair they look at the immigration policies that elites in both parties support and they say we need fundamental change career politicians won't do it barack obama a lot of people voted for barack obama and donald trump in iowa there's one county where from obama's reelection to trump's election they swung 40 points from democrat to republican those people look for change. Those people don't trust elites. Those people are in search of someone who will fundamentally change the direction of the country. Trump didn't create them. He just saw that those people responded to issues. Now, there were issues that he'd been talking about for a long time. He's talked about trade in China and Mexico for a long time, but he didn't go out and say, how are we going to find these people? He saw them out there with his own eyes, and he went out and said, I'm going to claim them as my coalition by talking to the aspirations that they have, by including them in an American story that they feel part of. That's what they want. They want to be part of the American story, not told you need to move from your rural place you live or your, your, your manufacturing town that's lost all its jobs and go to a big city. They want to live right where they live and they want to be part of America.
1: You talk about the way Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Charles Schumer and even Hillary Clinton, and you write, quote, their public presentations about the problem, this is Chinese trade imbalance, have tended toward prescriptions rather than the kind of emotional story-based communication that Trump utilizes, end quote. That's fair enough, but then you also write that Democrats can't condescend to these voters. How do you not condescend to them and yet at the same time avoid a factual policy-based approach?
2: Right. It's a great question, and and I asked a lot of the people I interviewed for the book to talk about that. By talking about it in a vivid way, sure, you can have a policy plan and, and should have a policy plan too, but talking about specifics, talking about specific Chinese companies, specific American companies, specific American workers who are losing out, to make it a more emotional, tangible, and human issue, not some abstract about statistics and currency fluctuation. One of the best descriptions, I think, in the book about the difference between Trump and a lot of the Democratic candidates is Trump is a storyteller. A lot of the Democrats are policy planners and storytellers tend to win in politics. One of the people I interviewed said, we need people who run for president in our party who who weren't debate champions, but who were theater majors, people who know how to tell a story.
1: That was Will Robinson, I think.
2: Will Robinson, yeah, longtime Democrat strategist. You can tell a story, that doesn't condescend. It just needs to be emotional and illustrative and also have your policy plan.
1: Which immediately made me think of Ronald Reagan, two-term president and had a long career in entertainment, radio, film. And yet, in many ways, Trump is the anti-Reagan in the sense that Reagan was all about optimism. And yet, you talk about the line that stuck in my mind was Trump's oddball cocktail of anger. Tell me about how this theater of optimism that Reagan presented transformed over a few decades into this, I don't want to call it a theater of misery, but sometimes it does have a genuinely apocalyptic overtones.
2: Yeah, it's apocalyptic and dark. You know, America from the time of Reagan, even though, even though there were certainly hard times in the 70s and 80s, you know, with Iran and, and energy crisis and inflation, there was a lot of problems back then. America still felt for a lot of people like an exceptional place. Americans still had a lot of optimism that Reagan tapped into. The last couple decades have been quite negative for a lot of people. The financial crisis in particular, 2007, uh, 2008, really scared a lot of people and made them feel more pessimistic that the country was on the wrong track. Trump is certainly darker than Reagan. I think I think people overstate the extent to which he's purely dark. But what what he shares with Reagan is he's a great storyteller, even even most people I know who hate who hate Donald Trump, detest him. If he's on TV, they turn up the volume. They can't look away. They want to hear what he's saying. He has an entertaining style of speaking that's engaging, even when he's being dark. But, but he also always, almost always has a wink and a smile, at least as part of his routine. So in a, in a, in a speech that's 70 minutes, you're going to hear a lot of dark, but you're also going to hear some, some jokes. You're going to hear some humor. You're going to see some smiles from Trump. And he has found a way, as, as you suggested I wrote, that this cocktail that's got some optimism in it, but a lot of pessimism, too. And that's a challenge that all the Democrats i talked to uh, for the book for the Democratic candidates to say, how do you not sound out of touch with this pessimistic mood in the country while still being what most Americans look for in their presidential candidates is is someone who's optimistic, someone who who thinks there can be a a shining city on the hill, someone who thinks you shouldn't stop thinking about tomorrow. Bill Clinton, you know, also an optimistic candidate, but that's the balance. You got to you have to address what's wrong. And one of the things that that, uh, some of the people I talked to, particularly ones from states like Michigan and Wisconsin, said is, you can't come to our states and talk about how great everything can be. You can't talk about how great everything was under Barack Obama. You need to come and talk about the reality, the long-term reality of what's happened in those states and the economy, the fears that people have about the future, or you're going to look like you're out of touch. And Trump, by being dark, didn't run the risk of people saying... This guy doesn't get it, this guy, this guy doesn't get how bad things are. People, people who voted for Trump said, he gets it. He gets how bad it is, and we think it's so bad we're willing to roll the dice on this guy and let him go to Washington and blow things up and start from scratch.
1: Your book is not intended in any way as a hit job on Hillary Clinton, but there was a section where you talk about her campaign slogan in 2016, which was Stronger Together in case anyone forgot, since it was somewhat forgettable. You, you talk about, this is something I didn't realize, that that slogan was picked off a list of 85 options compiled by a committee right. of consultants. When I heard that fact, it made me hate the slogan even more. The fact that right. it was picked the way a cookie company picks you know, its recipe based on focus groups. It's such a glaring lack of of authenticity, to some extent in this age of consultants, do you need a candidate who just points at a whiteboard and says, that's the one, I like that one, I'm going with it? How did Make America Great Again, how did that slogan come into being?
2: Yeah, well first, to go to your first point, I I just want to reinforce, I write about some negative examples of past candidates who haven't done well, some Republicans, some Democrats, because the consultants would, would point to examples and say, Here's something that Mitt Romney did wrong, or here's something that even Barack Obama did wrong, or, or some positive examples as well. Hillary Clinton did some things that clearly were, were exam- negative examples, and, and the slogan choice is one of them. Um, it's, it was the most forgettable slogan of all. I, as I write in the book, occasionally I'd be talking to our own aides, and they would have trouble remembering what their campaign slogan was. Make America Great Again was not original to Donald Trump. Some past candidates had used it as well. He thought of it. And, and as we know, one of the great strengths he has is he's great at coming up with marketing slogans, both positive, like make America great again, and, and negative ones, say, you know, crooked Hillary or uh, low energy Jeb." He, he has the ability to come up with things. So Trump came up with that early. Again, it's been used previously, but he latched onto it early. And I don't think there's been a slogan for anything, not just a presidential candidate in the last 20 years that has had such universal recognition. Everyone in America and frankly, lots of people in Europe and Asia and Latin America could tell you what Donald Trump's campaign slogan was. And that is that is a powerful marketing tool.
1: Although your book doesn't focus at all on any particular Democratic candidate, which I guess you can't because they could drop out between the time your book goes to the press (laughs) and the time people read it. We're having this conversation in late 2019, and we know who the field is. What are the hopeful signs you see from this field and who could win?
2: Well, if you talks to the Democrats I talk to, from the establishment, from the progressive wings, etc. there's still real fear that, that they're not sure that any of these candidates can win a general election. Most people in the establishment think that Joe Biden has the best chance. I talked to a lot of people, elected officials and and, and establishment strategists and donors who say they think Biden is literally the only one of the leading candidates who could win a general election. On the other hand, the people I talked to in the progressive wing of the party say an old establishment figure who's been around forever, who doesn't really seem to stand for anything memorable, who's been a failed presidential candidate in the two previous times he's run. They don't see Joe Biden being able to win. They think that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders could excite people more. And then there's people who say we need someone from the establishment, but that we need someone younger, someone who more represents change. And so someone like the, the Indiana mayor, Pete Buttigieg, or Amy Klobuchar, or, or, or um, Senator Harris from California, I'd say that those are the currently, those are the six candidates that people are talking most about. And there's no, there's no agreement. There's no consensus in the party about who's the strongest. And you've seen lately, in some leading newspapers, stories about, well, maybe someone else will get in the race. Maybe Hillary Clinton will run, or former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg will run, or John Kerry. So there is, there is great worry in the party. And, you know, When I started out writing the book, as I said, I was inspired by the degree of worry there was. Now that the field, as you correctly said, is sort of, is sort of gelled, and we see who's likely to be in the finals here when voting starts in, in early uh, next year, uh, people are still worried. There's no consensus whatsoever. About who would be the strongest candidate or what kind of person would be the strongest candidate. The consensus is Donald Trump's going to be very tough to beat, no matter who the Democrats
1: nominate. Congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.